Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. It's our 50th episode, and we have a great show for you today. You've seen his name on every major street, in every major city, in every country around the world. It's been written on the back of close to 40 million pairs of shoes since they first hit the streets in the mid-60s. But perhaps more notable than the shoe is the man himself. Along with Arthur Ashe, he is considered the essence of class, ushering in the open era, forming the ATP, and creating the tennis world that we know today. He won the U.S. Open in 71, Wimbledon in 72, and in an act of solidarity with other players, he boycotted the All England Club the following year. He beat Laver, Nastasi, Connors, Newcomb, and Ash, just to name a few. And we have him here for you today. Stan Smith's going to tell us why he thinks Coco Goff is the real deal. What he had to do to make the players' union stronger than the players' countries during the Cold War. And he's going to break down the story of how his famous shoe came to be. We met up with Stan in Newport, Rhode Island, the weekend of the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. This episode is brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. We are here at the Viking Hotel. The Hotel Viking This is the creme de la creme of hotels in Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, it's the VIP hotel for the Hall of Fame induction weekend. Our guest is the president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, former world number one, and someone that I actually share a birthday with. Oh, really? Indeed. Wow. And, and, and actually, there's a third who shares our birthday. B.J. Amatraj is one. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. I was going to say Nostradamus. Nostradamus is a December 14th birthday as well. And I don't know what exactly that means. But uh, the gentleman I just surprised is Stan Smith, who, uh, in addition to being all those things, is the author of a book, Most People Think I'm a Shoe. Yeah, the, the book is Stan Smith, Most People Think I'm a Shoe. That's a fact. Yeah. And that's a great book. That's a huge, that's a huge. It's a big coffee table book. It's about 300 pages. It's Pretty an heavy. awesome book. I have that book. Oh, good. I, got, I ordered that book a year ago, and um, I would have brought it to have you sign and take a picture with, but it was just so big that I, I couldn't figure out, I couldn't negotiate <laughs> that in my luggage. So everyone knows Stan Smith is the poster boy for Adidas, and that's been a good look for him. But for us, the look right now is Sergio Tacchini. That's right, the tennis brand worn by Sampras and Sabatini, McEnroe and Hingis, and heralded by countless recording artists, including Jay-Z and Nas, is all we are wearing. And this month, you could be wearing it too. Just hop on Instagram, follow us and Tacchini, And when you see one of our giveaway posts, tag a friend who loves tennis. You'll be automatically entered to win a Takini warm-up suit and a Takini bucket hat. Our Instagram handles are underreviewtennis and Sergio Takini official. Follow us and tag a friend. We'll announce the winner at the end of the month. Good luck. Now let's get back to the one and only Stan Smith. 
We do a five-set format. Our first set, we call it the off-the-court report. This is the Hall of Fame induction weekend. What is it that you do while you're here? Well, this is an important weekend for uh, honoring uh, the great players of the game. And this weekend, we're honoring Lee Na, Mary Pierce, and Yavgeny Kafelnikov, the Russian player. And they were voted in uh, last year. Um, and uh, it's great to have them here at Newport. We announced them in Australia. Uh, we've done that the last couple of years. Do you have any significant interesting obligations? Well, yes. I did the press conference today for them as far as uh, giving the press an opportunity to ask questions of them. And then, uh, I'm, you know, as a president of the, of the Hall of Fame, I have duties here during the uh, uh, the weekend, and I'll be putting the jacket on these three players this afternoon when they are actually inducted to the Hall of Fame. You put the jacket on. Yeah, yeah, and that's unbelievable. And we'll give them a, a medal as well. So uh, that's been my privilege the last few years. And that's cool. And you know, I, I introduced myself to you. I met you a year ago. You had a group here where you take them for a VIP experience. Isn't that right? You have a company called Stan Smith Events, and we help corporations entertain their clients at major events, at all the Grand Slams. We did it here for Southwest Airlines last year, uh, and we've been at Indian Wells in Miami as well. But uh, we also uh, help companies introduce or entertain their clients at the Olympics, the Rugby World Cup. They'll do, uh, let's say, two-day conferences we'll put together. So. We've been doing that for about 25 years, and it's, uh, it's been fun because we've had a lot of repeat business. I had a front row seat for it a year ago, and I, 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 think, and I think it's very cool. You know, everyone gets Dan Smiths, they get to interact with you, and they get on the court with you and others. Isn't that yeah, right? we bring other players in either to interview or to play on the court uh, to share their experiences of, of their career, and uh, so it's been... Uh, you know, the, the, the folks seem to enjoy the opportunity to, to mix with the, you know, with the top players. And you run an academy as well. Uh, I have an academy at Hilton Head called the Smith Stearns Tennis Academy. And so we You've are working with kids. You've had well, that a very for long two, time. since 2002. Yeah. I've been the touring pro at Sea Pines Resort since uh, 71, so that's been a long time. But we started the academy about, I guess, 17 years ago, and it's been fun because I've been able to to, uh, to work with kids, and I'm only home about a little less than half the time, but when I'm on the court there, I, I have a chance to, uh, to help the kids a bit. And, and some of the kids, our goal really is to get them to go to a college that's a, a good match for them for their uh, academics as well as for their tennis. And so we've had kids go to some of the top schools in the United States. Let's move right into our second set. Uh, it's the on-the-court report. Do you keep your eye on pro tennis in a significant way? Well, I do because of the Hall of Fame and because of my business. Uh, being at all the Grand Slams, I get to see the players uh, uh, quite a bit. Are there any women that have um, impressed you that, you know, maybe you, know, maybe, uh, you have some interesting perspective you'd like to share? Well, certainly the, the two ladies that were here yesterday playing, Anna, uh, Anna Samova, and uh, Danielle Collins, uh, you know, are, are two of our best players. Last week, we also, uh, you know, found out about uh, Coco. And um, she, I saw her play at Wimbledon last year in the juniors. And I also saw her play in the finals against Amanda 
Anna Samova at uh, the U.S. Juniors last year. They're 16 and 14 respectively, and and obviously they're two of our of our best young players coming along. And, and I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, any of those two players. Possibly Danielle could do it. She's a bit older now. She went through the college path uh, to the Pro Tour uh, to Virginia. Well, she so, had that. She also had that result in Australia. She's played some great tennis. She's feisty. She's a great striker of the ball. She she moves well and fights hard. And so she's got some potential. But these two young girls are, you know, so much younger, and and uh, they are, they have a great career ahead of them if they if they continue in the right path. They're the real thing, aren't they? They seem to be. I mean, uh, uh, Coco really has a great feel for the game. She seems to be able to understand when to make changes in her game uh, to play against, you know, different styles of player and she can't play and she also can can do it. It's not only to be able to know it, but to be able to do it is the other thing that uh, I think she has the capability of doing. And uh, Amanda has great power, you know, from both sides. She has kind of an easy, easy leverage. Uh, uh, I call it liquid power. When I see uh, uh, Federer, for instance, he's got liquid power that comes off his racket. Doesn't look like he's trying too hard, but it comes off his racket. And it's, it's a matter of, of the lever as well as the timing of the shot. Liquid power. We have not heard that. That is cool. I like that. Liquid power. I understand exactly what you're talking about. A lot of people call it like sort of easy power. Yeah, you see that with golfers as well. You see early L's, you know, they call them the big Izzy. Easy. He's got this liquid power and, uh, and uh, Oosterhaus. There's a lot of good players on the tour, on the golf tour, as well as on the, uh, the tennis tour, that it really the ball seems to come off their racket explosively without them looking like they're putting as much effort into it. Carbonated. And in the men, are there any uh, players that have uh, maybe gotten on your radar in an interesting way? Well, I, I you know, um, you know, I loved uh, Francis Tiafo. He's coming along well. He's, his uh, progress has been very steady. Uh, I think he'll continue to improve. Um, and uh, you've got some other, you know, good young Americans coming along. Um, is, no. uh, is, is that that big kid Opelka one of those? Opelka's one of the guys. He's got, uh, he's got some liquid power. And uh, he's a great mover for such a, uh, a big, big person. I mean, he's seven feet tall. Yes, for seven feet or 6'11", he's, he, uh, he moves pretty well. He's got a good backhand, a great forehand, big serve, of course. And uh, uh, he's the type of guy you don't want to see in the draw if you're going to a tournament. You want, you want to see guys that you know, but you don't want to see a guy like Opelka or Isner in the draw because they can just uh, take the racket out of your hand. Let's move into our third set. This is the part of our show where we talk about your career. Where does your tennis story really start? Well, I grew up in Pasadena. They had a group of parents uh, that formed the Pasadena Tennis Patrons, and they actually hired Pancho Segura to come to Pasadena High School every Saturday morning. So he drove from Beverly Hills to Pasadena and uh, worked and, with us. And to be clear, Pancho Segura at that moment in time had to have been, you know, in the 50s. And yeah, he was probably 50 to 60 that period of time. And he must have been a pro tennis player that was also the head pro at Beverly Hills Tennis Club. Would that be fair to say? Correct. Okay. And so we would... Uh, practice for four hours at uh, Pasadena High School. The courts were kind of a pink, peachish color with hard wire nets. And it was uh, not exactly a country club situation, but uh, the, 
the top players got 20 minutes with Poncho, uh, and uh, I learned a lot from him as far as strategy and, and how to play big points. Uh, he, was a, he was probably one of the smartest uh, tennis minds in the business because he was only about 5'6". He had rickets when he was small. He had a two-handed forehand, no backhand, no serve, moved like the wind, volleyed actually quite well, but he had to think his way through matches, and he beat all the top players, including Pancho Gonzalez, Rosewall, all those guys that were around his period of time. He won the NCAAs, I think, three times, and uh, so he, he was a very smart player, and even till the last, he died last year, but even till the end, I would, he would come to Wimbledon sometimes, and I'd sit next to him, and he'd dissect a player of how you would play a certain player. So he was very current with players today as to how to play against certain styles of play. And he became your real deal coach, isn't that right? For three years, uh, from 15 to 18, I spent a lot of time with him as he came over to Pasadena. Then I went to USC and I did see him off and on when I was at USC because we were just down the road from each other. And in fact, uh, when I won the US Open, he actually <laughs> came right next to me as I was walking from the, from the clubhouse to the uh, center court and uh, gave me some advice about how to play Jan Kodish in the finals. You beat Jan Kodish in Forest Hills. You gotta tell us what he said to you. Pancho Segura? Yeah. He told me three things. He said, serve kickers to Jan's forehand because he had a continental forehand. He didn't like the high ball up here. Um, run around the second serve and attack it with your forehand and lob him after he hits his first volley because he was fairly short and he got in tight to the net and uh, was very quick. So as it turned out, I won the tiebreaker. The fourth set was a tiebreaker and I hit uh, one forehand winner on a second serve. I hit a lob over his head and then uh, uh, I, won the, I lost the first set serving hard and flat to his forehand and his backhand. And then I remember that idea of kicking it to the forehand, which is a bit of an unusual tactic, uh, but it became more effective. He couldn't keep that ball down couldn't get over it. It got too high. I liked the low ball on the grass. There it is. Uh, Pancho Segura uh, with the assist. Yeah, he was, uh, it was an assist. It was quite amazing because we hadn't talked to each other too much. And then he just kind of kind of started walking next to me as we were walking to, from the, and he said, look, these are three things you should do. And, and uh, like I said, he was the smartest guy in tennis. So how do you become, it seems to me that quite often, in that moment in time, you would go to college, but you sort of were already, like, and I guess the summer would sort of come and you would just start playing the pro tour. The tour, yeah. It wasn't the pro tour right, until tour. 68. So I graduated in 68, so the timing... You were right on the edge of all that. Yeah, the timing in my life has been good in many ways, and not just uh, that, but uh, I remember they changed the junior uh, age qualifications from 11, 13, 15, 18 to 12, 14, 16, 18 right at the time when I turned 16. So I was able to play the last year, the 15s, the last year, the 16s. And that's just another example of how uh, my life has been pretty blessed, timing-wise. Did you graduate college? Yeah, I was the last uh, graduate to win a Grand Slam. Uh, Arthur Ashe graduated before me and won a Grand Slam after me, but uh, I was the last one to graduate to, to win a Grand Slam, singles. And what was your college experience like? I mean, it was great. I had the best, in my opinion, the best college coach that's ever coached, and George Tolley. He took players uh, like uh, Alex Omedo, who was from Peru, who couldn't really play that well. Uh, he brought him to, to USC and then continued to coach him. And 
he won the uh, U.S. Open Wimbledon, and Alex and uh, Rafael Osuna was a player from Mexico who was really an average player when he came to USC. He ended up winning uh, Wimbledon doubles. He won the U.S. Open uh, singles, and so, Wait, so George we, told we, these guys weren't that good of players. They weren't that good of players when they came to USC. That and and that to me is a sign of a great coach as he developed players. You know, Lutz and I and Raul Ramirez and uh, several others. You know, went to USC that. That improved. Dennis Ralston was another example. Um, so Dennis Ralston was quite a good player when he got there. He actually won Wimbledon doubles with uh, with Rafael Osuna when he was 17 years old. And uh, Rafael was like 19 or 20. as a sophomore in college, and Dennis was just about to enter into college. So this isn't meant to make you feel bad, but the year I was born, you lost a war at Wimbledon final to John Newcomb. The score is 6'3", 5'7", 2-6, Yeah, I played him in the finals of the Queens Club tournament uh, two weeks before Wimbledon and, and beat him there. And so I, I went into the match, even though he was favored, I went into the match feeling I had a good chance to win. And after losing the first set, I, was, I played some unbelievable tennis. I won, you know, like 10 out of 15 games in a row at one point and, and uh, was really rolling. Uh, but then I, I forgot to win the last point. Um, but uh, <laughs> next year I had the experience of being in the finals and, and knowing what it was like and dealing with the press, dealing with the fans, dealing with uh, you know, my friends and family and understanding the, what it was like to play in the finals, and that really helped. But that's, a, that's another war. I mean, you played, you played Ely, Nastasia. Well, yeah, I lost the first set like the year before. I won the next two sets like the year before. I lost the fourth set like the year before, and it was almost like the year before. Man, you came through. That's a great win. It was a good win, yeah. And what was Nastasi's behavior like uh, during that? Well, in the finals of that match, the only really bad uh, problems he had was with his rackets, and he kept jumping up and down on his rackets to loosen the strings, and he was complaining that the strings weren't right. But uh, you overall, could hear him match, saying that. Yeah, and and he had his uh, his agent, you know, trying to get him new rackets and that sort of thing. But overall, he actually behaved pretty well, and the quality of tennis was quite good, particularly in the fifth set. He was a great player. Yeah, he was a great mover. He was a, a real natural player, uh, had a flair for the game, and and, uh, and was very, very fast. You know, you've been written about as one of the greatest players to ever play. How would you describe your tennis and your career to those of us that never got that chance to see you play? Well, I, I fought hard. I was a good player. I, I was number one in the world and uh, for a couple of years, but... Uh, it doesn't really compare to a guy like Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, these guys that won multiple Grand Slams, even a, a Newcomb or uh, Mats Wielander, for instance, won, I think, five or six Grand Slam titles in singles. And I won a few in doubles and lost a few in doubles and lost a few in singles as well. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I fought hard. I had a little of, a, of an elbow injury uh, in the 70s, which uh, affected me a bit. You had an elbow injury that was chronic? Yeah, for about two or three years, I was fighting it uh, off and on, and, and uh, was it an overuse injury? Was it something you did? Yeah, I, it was. I did something actually in in Amsterdam, playing doubles with uh, VJ Armitage. As a matter of fact, and it's a cold, you know, practice facility. And I hurt my elbow a little bit, and I I continued to play, and I, I won uh, Vienna in singles, and I won the next week in singles, and I won the doubles a couple of weeks as well. And I kept playing. I should have stopped, and I didn't, and that. It kept getting worse. Um, how would you describe the tour in, in pro tennis 
at that moment in time? I mean, sound, I mean, it feels like you guys had a great time, man. Well, you know, the biggest thing about it is that we just had started the ATP and, and we boycotted Wimbledon when I was playing my best. I was seated number one and, and uh, had, had won like uh, seven tournaments leading up to Wimbledon. So, uh, so, sorry, so in an effort to get power, your group, the, the ATP, the original ATP, you had to tell the ITF or the slams themselves, the tournaments themselves, man, we're not playing. Well, we told Wimbledon that. We told the old, the old England club. And uh, that was obviously one of the, they were you know, controlled by the ITF, the, the Forks Grand Slams were the ITF basically. And so um, we felt that our player wasn't, uh, Nicky Pilic wasn't treated fairly. Uh, his, he wasn't in good standings with his country, Yugoslavia at the time. And he wasn't allowed to play Wimbledon even though he, you know, he was, uh, you know, a good player, but he just he decided not. He, well, he didn't decide he couldn't play Davis Cup because he had committed to WCT doubles final, which conflicted with that. And uh, the Yugoslavian Tennis Association said he wasn't in good standing with the association. Nikki Pilic was a, a was a great player. I I think at some point he became like a German. He coach. was a coach of the German yeah. Davis Cup team. He but, coached a lot of good players. But he's a Yugoslavian player, and his federation screwed him. And as a result, they were in cahoots with the All England Club, and you guys all backed Nicky. That's one way to say it. He wasn't in good standing officially with the Yugoslavian Tennis Federation. And you had to be in good standing with your federation when you entered a tournament, particularly like Wimbledon. And they said he wasn't, so that's why they wouldn't allow him to play, and we felt that wasn't right. And you stood, you, you stood up to them? Yeah, all but about three members of our association uh, elected not to play. Who won Wimbledon that year? Jan Kodish beat to Metrovelli. That's Jan right. Kodish played Metrovelli. Played Metrovelli from Russia in the finals, and uh, there were some other Eastern European players. They had more of a problem in their own right. They had to worry about their governments and uh, whether they could get visas to leave their country to play tennis. I mean, that's a whole nother episode. Like it a was a great time in tennis. We had, you know, it was the transition from amateur tennis to pro tennis, the start of our ATP. Um, the, uh, you know, the WCT was part of that time and, as well. And so uh, there, was, there were three different categories. There was contract pros, independent pros, and amateurs. And, and even describing it now is a bit complicated. It's complicated to talk about. Um, you got to tell us the story of the shoe, the Stan Smith. Well, the shoe uh, was the first leather shoe ever made. It was, it was uh, created by Horace Dossler, who was Adi Dossler's son. What year did this all go down? 1965, they created the first leather shoe, and uh, Horace Dossler and Robert Hayet, uh, and they were, Horace Dossler had left Germany and gone to France and kind of created Adidas in France. Adi Dossler, the Dossler, that's, that's Adidas. Yeah, Adi Dossler is uh, the creator of uh, Adi Doss, and they created Adi Dossler. They shortened Dossler to Doss, and that's Adi Doss. And so in Europe, it's considered Adi Doss. In the United States, we call it Adidas. But in 71 and 2, they wanted to get a stronger presence in the United States. The shoe was selling okay, but um, they thought if they had an American affiliated with it, it would be helpful. I was the number one player in the world at the time, and obviously American, so... Uh, we had a situation where both of our names were on it. My pitcher was on it, his name was on it for three, four, or five years, and then eventually his name was uh, taken off the shoe, and, and uh, the rest is history. 
Do you wear Adidas from head to toe, or you just wore the shoe? Uh, do you wear that? Like, what sock well, were you wearing? I had a I had a uh, agreement with Duofold, which is a manufacturer in the Northeast, actually New England, and they made great product. It was the Golden Eagle, the Stan Smith Golden Eagle, and uh, after about three years, it, it just wasn't you know selling well. It was pretty much too regional, and so then I uh, I looked at maybe doing something with Lacoste or Adidas and. Uh, it didn't make sense to do something with somebody different because by that time I had my name on the shoe. And uh, so I, I ended up being head-to-toe Adidas. Head-to-toe. And did you ever pivot from that? You were no, no. I was really honored to be part of the Adidas family because it was the, the, the best brand in the, in the business and uh, uh, the highest quality and, and a great... Uh, it already had a, a bit of a legacy at that time, you know. In fact, uh, this year is the 70th anniversary of Adidas and... Uh, I'll be going over to Germany to celebrate that. But You're going to be going to Herzegonawa? Yeah. Herzegonawa is the city where Adidas headquarters is. As well and, as Puma, which is it, right across the river. And it's interesting that the two brothers, the Dosslers. Yeah, Adi and Rupert uh, had a little bit of a fight. They had a problem, and Rupert created Puma. And the two companies are directly across the river from each other. Isn't that right? That's right. And they're... Their worldwide headquarters are still there. Herzegonawa. Now you're going to be there. I mean, people must go wild when they see you there. The original. They get excited. <laughs> they get excited because I'm probably the person that's been with Adidas the longest in uh, in all the company. Actually, there's a few people that worked in the factory, but you know by now they're they're retired, so uh, they are surprised to see me. There's a ton of Stan Smiths. There's a million variations. What's the most unusual? Is there one that's you know solid gold? Well, they made uh, they made all sorts of different uh, shoes over the years. They've gone from the solid white to all sorts of different uh, variations in colors and materials. Uh, they in in 2000 they made the Millennial uh, shoe, which was uh, a little. A thicker sole, more cushion, more support, and that was a that was probably the most unusual shoe because it uh, it did change what uh, the original shoe looked like. Uh, the one with the boost. Yeah, there was one with the boost. I actually had one with a little cushion thing on the bottom. There's a few things that they did to change it, but but in reality, the shoe was very similar to to the way the shoe is uh, is made now. So it's. Uh, it really hasn't changed too much. I made a couple of suggestions to have the the tab in the back go up a little higher to support the Achilles tendon. Yeah. And then there's a loop in the uh, in the laces where it keeps the tongue from moving from side to side. And those are the, probably the, the two changes in the shoe since uh, 1965. I mean, incredible. Yeah. And did, did they have, do they have a building named after you in Herzegovina? No, they don't. They don't have a building. Uh, they should absolutely after. make a building. <laughs> my feeling is that everybody in the world should have at least one pair of my shoes, but that's a somewhat <laughs> biased uh, thought. I mean, incredible. I mean, the, the the shoe is iconic. Everybody, I mean, I mean, the fact that it's been going on for your entire 40 years. Yeah, well, actually, they took it off the market in 2012 and 13 because it had lost sort of its, uh, its uh, niche and... Uh, they relaunched it in January 15th of 2014, and they did it pretty much through social media, and it was, uh, uh, it was a, a smash hit. It all came back, and also, I mean, 
you know, the, the, the warm-up suits with the three stripes. I mean, people love those warm-up suits. Yeah, those are great. How many of those do you think you've worn over the, yeah, like, like probably, two, three hundred? Uh, no, warm-up suits, probably 20 or 30, but uh, they're, uh, you know, because of the history of Adidas and, and, and the products they made a long time ago, the, the retro movement really has embraced Adidas clothing and shoes and, and all the products. I don't even know what the moral of that story is. I mean, it's well, just... it's kind of a simple product. It's something that can be enduring. Let's move into our fourth set. We call this our 10-ball scramble. We're not, we don't really do a deep dive. I'll say something. Okay. You tell us what comes into your mind. One word. Well, no, I mean, you can, you can expand, but just can't, can't okay. get too deep. Your favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Your favorite city? Uh... It's getting to be uh, Melbourne or Sydney. You like Australia? Yeah. Everyone loves Australia. Yeah. Now, will you go every, do you go yearly? Yeah, we've been going there for the last 22 years uh, to Australia for the Australian Open with our business, Stan Smith well, Events. So how many Grand Slams do you think you've attended? Have you ever tried to figure that out? No, but I, this year I remember saying that I've been to Wimbledon 54 times. The first year was 65, so it'd be 54. And um, I didn't go to the French every year and, and Australia every year. In fact, I didn't play Australia that much um, because it was right after Christmas. But I have been to all those now for the last 20 to 25 years. You, so you've been a well, you've like been a well over 200 grand. Yeah, stars. maybe something like that. Woo! I mean, that's a lot. Of, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, your favorite player growing up? Pancho Gonzalez. Your hardest, the, your hardest opponent, your most difficult guy who had your number? Uh, there are a lot of guys that qualify for having my number. I lost to a lot of good players. Um, Was there anybody that but, gave you uh, real trouble? You know, Nukem beat me in the finals of Wimbledon. He beat me a few other times. I beat him a few times as well. Um, Rosewall was a good player that I think is somewhat underrated. Uh, and, uh, you know, beating Labor was a, was a real pleasure. That one year in 77, I beat him four times in a row. But uh, Borg on Clay. You, you beat be Rod Labor four times in a row. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, that was a highlight. But he was getting to be 35-ish, 6 or 7-ish. And so, uh, but he was still a good player, and that was uh, good. But then Borg on Clay, I guess, would be the one that would be the most difficult. Or Velos on Clay. I lost to both those guys at the French, and that was like having a root canal. That was hard. Um, I wanted to ask you about Labor. Well, he's in my top six of the greatest players. He's, he's probably two behind Federer, and Djokovic is coming up there, and Nadal's up there. Borg and, uh, and Sampras would be my top six. Uh, but Labor was, you know, who's won the Grand Slam, uh, you know, since, since Labor? No one, and he's won it twice, and so... Uh, he's got to be in the conversation for the greatest players. If he had these rackets that we have today, he would have been even more effective. His game would have been even more effective than, uh, than even a guy like Rosewall, for instance, who was more kind of flat strokes. It's hard to compare uh, generations. Um, you like it's, to hear? it's impossible. It's very hard, yeah. Connors. Connors is a great competitor. Uh, and uh, he, uh, I don't think he trusted anybody but his mother and grandmother. You overlap with him? Yeah. And did you have results with him? Yes, I, uh, I played him uh, when he was 17 or 18. I beat him a few times. And then we were co-ranked number one in the United States in 1973. 
I think Correct. it was. Correct. Yeah, it was an odd situation. I had a good first year, as I told you, then the second year, he had a great second year, and he beat me in, in that second part of the year, and uh, he was a he was a great competitor. He, you know, you, you feel he would kill, uh, you know, you know, just to kill you then uh, lose to you. Arthur Ashe. Arthur Ashe was a class guy. Uh, and uh, he was a great tennis player, but he's even a greater person. Friend? Great friend. Where does you, where does you, where did you guys' story begin? Were you, well, it were began you in Davis at- Cup in 68. We played Davis Cup together in 68. He had graduated four years in front of me at UCLA. I went oh. to USC, and so we didn't play in college, but uh, I saw him play early on, and then we started traveling, playing Davis Cup in 68 and 69. We played a lot of Davis Cup matches together. I was playing doubles mainly with Bob Lutz, and uh, he was playing singles, playing uh, awesome tennis, and and then our friendship you know, grew from there. We actually started a company, uh, about six or seven of us, called Players Enterprises, and. Uh, and invested some things together, and but you know we became good friends, and he and his wife, and his daughter, and my daughter, and and family, and I'm still very close with Jeannie. Let's move into our fifth set. We call this the King of the Court. You know what? Generally speaking, in this, we basically just simply ask, like, what is it you would change? But as a founder of the ATP. Can you maybe talk a little bit about its its health and its and some of your observations and maybe go from there and see what it is maybe you'd like to change? Well, I, you know the the ATP started in uh, you know in the seventies and we we boycotted Wimbledon. I think it actually was uh, one of the moves that bonded all the players together. All the top players were behind it. Um, and uh, the good news is that a lot of the top players have been involved uh, in the ATP in the last uh, seven or eight years with Federer and Djokovic and Nadal. Um, I, I feel that the players have gotten a little bit greedy uh, in the last uh, five years or so. Uh, and it's, it's hard to know what percentage of the, uh, the revenue out there that the players should get. Um, the Grand Slams are doing very well. Uh, the other tournaments are not doing so well. The, the thousands are doing pretty well. The 500s and the 250s are not doing so well. Uh, I, I really do feel the players are uh, maybe overstepping their bounds at this point in time because the health of the entire circuit is really important for the full rank and file of the, uh, of the ATP. And, and it's, it's always been from the very beginning, should the top players fight for money for the top players and then just have a little bit for the rest of the players? Or we really tried to, particularly with the, the ranking system, the computer ranking system was, was the most important thing, I think, that the ATP controlled and never lost its control of that. Uh, and it was important that it was fair for the top players as well as the lower players. And that's what needs to be done with a tour. And the question is how many players from around the world should be able to play professional tennis and make money doing that? And How many should? Yeah, it's a, I think we should have, you know, at least three to 400, you know, players making a living playing tennis worldwide. A real you think living. about it, you look at the NBA, the NFL, uh, baseball, you got... 
you know, hundreds of players that are playing just in the United States. And uh, this is a, the second most popular worldwide sport in the world after soccer. And so we could have five or 600 players that should be making a living, but it's got to be organized in such a way that that, that can happen. And, and you can't just be putting all your emphasis in the grand slams, the thousands, and then hope that the others stay in there because the other tournaments aren't making a lot of money. Uh, and uh, for the health of the, of the whole circuit, you've got to have the lower players that are, that are coming up along the ranks. If they can't make a living early on, then they're going to have to do something else, and that would hurt the game. Are appearance fees the problem? <laughs> you know, back when we started the tour, we actually said, okay, that the, the tournaments like Washington, uh, uh, Cincinnati, uh, Philadelphia, South Orange, they said, look, well, let's play Arthur 5,000 and Stan 5,000 and Newcomb 5,000. Just to show. And just to show up, and then there'll be a, just a small pot of money. We said, no, let's just put the money into the prize money, and we play for it. And generally, the top player would would win about 20% of the prize money. So if you had a $20,000 tournament, what, actually, there were 25,000, the original ones. The, in 1968, in the United States were almost all 25,000 total. The you winner would get 5,000 if you won it. Five and grand. Uh, if you gave five grand to four or five of the players, what do you have to play for for the rest of the players? And so the top players, I think, uh, felt that that was important. And I think that... They have to, and in a way, I think they have been uh, receptive to trying to take care of the uh, of all the players. But I mean, I've heard some numbers that shock me when I hear about appearance fees. Well, appearance fees and have it, gone out of the over the you know. And, 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 you, and you look at the tournament. There's no one in the stands. Okay, it's a Monday afternoon. There's nine people there, and there's guys playing that are getting paid guaranteed six figures, and it, it, it's hard to believe that the tournament could... Yeah, how can it exist? How could it exist? I mean, you, yeah. you got to do the math on that. Yeah, and so the, it's a hard one. It's just like the executives being paid in our big companies around the United States. They're being offered this by the board, and they're, they're saying, well, they're not turning it down with these big golden parachute situations. And the top players, you know, if the... If the uh, Market is out there for them, and if they can get seventy-five thousand or fifty thousand, uh, they're going to get seventy-five thousand if they can. So it's going to you know, take away from the prize money. So it it's hard to regulate that. I guess that's the point. And uh, the top players have to really look after the game and pay it forward. And pay it forward, and that's what you know. They should be, you know, in, in the men's game, they should be thanking uh, Rod Laver and uh, Ken Rosewall and Arthur Ashe and. John Newcomb and uh, the players that, that that played on this uh, you know eight-man pro tour thing for nothing and and uh, but grew the game and then the ATP started and that really is the same circuit we really had back when we started today and uh, just it's it's become a big business and so it's easy for the big tournaments like the Grand Slams because it's uh, you got all the big players playing but the other tournaments have to survive for the that whole tour to make it. Stan Smith, first of all, thank you very much for uh, joining us and breaking down some things as a certainly an elder statesman of the game. 
you know, your perspective is uh, it's interesting and it should be heard. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure. My man, you are released. We'll see you later. Okay. Huge thank you to Stan Smith. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. See what they are doing at SergioTacchini.com. If you want to get into your very own free Tacchini warm-up suit, head on over to Instagram, follow Under Review Tennis and Sergio Tacchini Official. And when we post about the giveaway, tag anyone who loves tennis or Tacchini. But we got to warn you, with your new Tacchini warm-up suit, you might feel inspired to up your entire game and start playing with the pros. We at Under Review understand these problems, and we've got solutions. Head on over to our Patreon page, where patrons of the show can get great perks like hits with some of our former guests, like Ashley Harklerode, Trey Walkie. You can find out all about it at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. Thank you to all the folks at the Viking Hotel and the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Big thank you to Zach Gallen and everyone from Inside Out Sports and Entertainment. Thank you all for listening. We can only assume you guys have subscribed, rated, and reviewed us, so we will skip that. But still, please tell your friends, shoemakers, doubles partners, and fellow union members. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.